It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. My guest is Bill Boggs, four-time Emmy award-winning interviewer and no stranger to Las Vegas. He's also the author of The Adventures of Spike the Wonder Dog, a new comedic novel from Post Hill Press. For everything about Bill Boggs, go to BillBoggs.com. And for everything about Spike the Wonder Dog, go to SpikeTheWonderDog.com. And you can follow both on Twitter at RealBillBoggs and SpikeWonderDog. And Bill, welcome to the show. Well, geez, it's great to be with you. Although I know things are not good in Vegas now, but it's a pleasure to be with you, Ira, in one of my favorite places in America. Believe me, I love Las Vegas. You definitely have several connections to Las Vegas. I want to touch on one because you did a few interviews over the years with Frank Sinatra, who, of course, is a big part of the Las Vegas story. Give us a sense of that. Did you know the man before you interviewed him? What was the background? Well, it all has to do with Las Vegas, Ira. I had a show in New York with for 12 years called Midday Live with 13 years, Midday Live with Bill Boggs, okay? And the first year I did that show, having come up from High Point, North Carolina, Frank Sinatra appeared on Midday. It wasn't live. He came in, he wanted to do it in the afternoon. It was too early in the morning otherwise. And it turned out to be the first time he was ever on a talk show. And it turned out to be the longest interview of his life. And it made headlines around the world that that a, a guy who was like a rookie on a, a show in New York had somehow interviewed Frank Sinatra. So for that was 1975. All these years, hundreds and hundreds of people have asked me, "quote How did you get Frank Sinatra?" So I'm going to tell you the story, and it all has to do with Las Vegas. It was Easter weekend, April of 1975, I was meeting a group of my friends, one of whom was having a birthday in Las Vegas for a big uh, weekend. I got there on Friday, and Saturday night, we went to see Elvis' early show and Sinatra late show. Okay. Uh, what a night. Okay. And that was, that was only part of the, of the two and a half days. So most of them, by, you know, after Frank's show, we went out to some other place. I'd come lounge, and they, they were really bombed. I mean, really bombed. They, they kind of staggered back to the room, but I was so entranced with this big Easter weekend in Vegas. I was in Caesar's Palace. Well, I just decided to walk around for another hour before going to bed. I, I didn't want to drink anything else. We'd been partying all day. So anyway... I, who should I run into at the quarter after 3 a.m. on an Easter Sunday morning, 1975, than Julie Rizzo? Now, Julie Rizzo, anybody who knows anything about Frank, was Frank's great friend, his right-hand man, just a good man, a good guy. And Julie knew me from my association with Sammy Davis Jr. when I produced a concert with Sammy Davis while I was just a, a young guy in college. And... He also knew that I was now on television in New York. He recognized me from both. So Julie says to me, would you like to meet Frank? He volunteers us. Of course. I don't say, no, Julie, you know, I'm a little late. I say I'm going to go tuck myself in the bed. Yes, of course I'm going to meet Frank. <laughs> so, so he says, come back at 4 o'clock. He'll be in the Galleria Lounge there in Caesars. 
which I don't think exists anymore. It, it did a few years ago. Anyway, so I have 45 minutes to kind of collect myself that I'm going to meet Frank, whom I idolized. And I don't use that term lightly. I was, as a young teenager, struck by uh, my fact that my, I love rock and roll. The first concert I ever, live concert I ever saw was Elvis Presley in 1957 as a child. Anyway, Frank used to come to this place in, in Atlantic City called the 500 Club. And I wanted to see what Sinatra was all about because there was such excitement in Atlantic City. I was working in Ocean City. I'll get back to Vegas in a second. Sure. That I snuck in to the 500 Club owned by Skinny D'Amato, dressed as a busboy with a friend of mine, and saw Sinatra's 11 o'clock show, loved it, and just fell in love with Frank Sinatra, started buying all of his albums. So my great interest in rock and roll was expanded to the Great American Songbook and Sinatra. So by 1975, I had probably seen Frank, oh, live at least 15 times. I went to see him everywhere he was. So I'm a big fan. I'm looking forward to meeting Frank, right? So Jilly sees at four o'clock I show up and there's Frank and Galleria and a couple of beautiful women. He's still got a tuxedo on. All these guys look great. I'm just a young guy, like just past being a kid. You know what I mean? Sure. So Frank and I connected. Jilly introduced me. And Easter Sunday morning from about four to four twelve, four fifteen, Sinatra and I talked. He wanted to know how Elvis looked. And I'll tell you, I've seen Elvis two other times. I said, Frank, he doesn't look good. He had like a, in 75, a glassy look in his eyes. And we were ringside. And we talked about he had come out of retirement. He was fighting back. I told him about the 500 Club incident, which had ended up in the paper because no one believed us that we stuck in to see Frank. And so we went back the next night and took pictures. <laughs> balls to do this. We went back and took pictures. And so the owner of our hotel called Skinny, and there was this thing about two, two unidentified young men. They didn't want to put our names in the paper. Sure. <laughs> They're afraid they'll come and put a hit on us. Snuck into the 500 Club. So the night I met Frank, I, I said, Am I, you know, I first saw you. And Frank says, You're the guy. He's like that. Anyway, the end of the interview, the end of the conversation with Frank, right? Frank Sinatra says to me, Julie says you have a, a TV show in New York on Channel 5. Yeah. And he said, well, look, I don't want to promise anything, but uh, I'm going to be in New York in September. It's months away, but maybe I'll stop by and do your show. I wrote, when Frank said that, what do you think I said? Honestly, I don't remember every word of this. What do you think I said? I would, think, said, I would think you probably thought that's not going to happen. But, but what do you think I would have said to him? Oh, what you would have said to him? Uh, yeah. You would have said, my, well, my door is always open to you. No. You know what I said? What? I put both palms up. This was not a pre-considered thing. This was just an instant right. reaction. Right, right. Spontaneous. And I said, Frank, I'm not asking for anything. And Frank pulled down my hand, cupped it in his two hands, pulled me in close with these cobalt blue eyes, said, Billy, I know you're not asking Maybe I'll come and do the show. And he did. Now, I know that's a long story, but I, I like to tell it if I have time because it's such a great Las Vegas story. You know, the excitement, the excitement in Vegas when Frank would be in town or certain other performers was palpable. You know, when you were interviewed, when you were meeting him for the first time, Bill, and you were just sitting there talking at Caesars, 
what was going through your mind? Did you have an out-of-body experience in that sense? Meaning, is that really me talking to Frank Sinatra? Uh, no, no, no. I mean, no, I'd been interviewing Jesus. Before I got to New York, I had a show for three years. Well, no, I understand I that. But, Bill, my, my point, though, no. is that Sinatra was such an icon and, and an well, icon of yours. That's why I'm asking you oh, that way. Oh, if, if you want another, the, the true answer to what I was thinking was this. After I saw Frank at the 500 Club in the early 60s, Every once in a while, I would have this, I had a recurring dream a couple times a year that I'm sitting in a chair and Frank is sitting in a chair and I'm talking to Frank. We're just having a conversation. And you know how nuts dreams are. Sometimes it looked like Frank. Sometimes it didn't, but it was always Frank. And I would wake up with this wonderful feeling. Now, we left for this Easter Vegas weekend on Friday. Thursday night, before leaving, the night before going to Vegas, I woke up that morning having had a truly vivid Frank Sinatra sitting across from me, talking to me dream, which I said I only had a couple times a year. And I felt that I had had a prescient dream, that I had a dream that saw the future. Now, again, I can prove this because I, I'm not making this up. When I went to work that day, I said to Paul Noble, who's 83 years old and still alive, who knew I was going to Vegas, I said, Paul, I have this feeling I'm going to meet Frank Sinatra this weekend, and he's going to come and do midday. And it happened. So this is a little bit of the, the fate. Fate was on my side that night. That's what I just No doubt, I No doubt thinking. about it. But I guess my, yeah. the way I'm looking at it, though, is here's someone that you idolized, that you snuck in to the 500 Club to yeah. see, right? And all of it. Now you're actually meeting him and sitting and talking with him prior to the interview back in New York. So you're sitting there and talking with him. Was it just another person you're talking to or were you yeah. starstruck? It's exactly, what it, it's exactly what it felt like. I had I had interviewed James Brown. I had interviewed Sammy Davis Jr. I had interviewed Shelley Berman, interviewed Glenn Campbell. I had interviewed in my North Carolina show dozens and dozens and dozens of people. And all it was the thing that I was just soaking up Frank's aura. Plus, Ira, let's not overlook the fact that I had been partying all day. So you know how like booze will take away the edge, right? Of nerves? Right, right. I was I was extremely loose, Ira, almost as loose as I am now with you. <laughs> seriously, seriously, I was loose. My other friends had passed out. I was so ambulatory. <laughs> well, I'm glad you feel loose talking to me. To, and I promise you that if I come back to New York, I'll come on your show for two shows. I'd like that. Like that. <laughs> and, and I know you didn't ask me to, but to I'll do it. I start dreaming about you, Ira. I, I, I don't want a man club. <laughs> That's great. So of all the people that because of the connection, as I mentioned in the beginning, your connection with Las Vegas, you've been here so many times and you've t you've interviewed so many people, which a lot of them you can see on your Bill Boggs TV channel on YouTube. Yeah. What would you say in terms of the numbers of people that I guess entertainers, primarily performers, comedians that did their craft in Las Vegas that you interviewed? Do you have a rough number in your head? Oh, geez. If I had known in advance you were going to ask that, uh, well, certainly I interviewed in Las Vegas on my Food Network show, Go Boggs Coder Table. For that show, I interviewed Tommy Toon, David Cassidy, Ken and Teller, and Debbie Reynolds at different times, all in Las Vegas. I interviewed both Tommy and David when they were in FX at, at different times. Of course, 
I interviewed Sammy Davis Jr. I interviewed Joey Bishop, uh, a, lo- a lot of front, Alan King, a lot of frontline comedians, you know. I would say dozens and dozens of performers who, who worked in Las Vegas over the years. And then I covered boxing at the same time I was on Showtime. I covered, excuse me, I was on the Food Network. I covered boxing for Showtime, Ira. So I was actually in Vegas three weeks staying at Caesar's Palace, shooting two shows for the Food Network and covering a big boxing match. I, I covered all the, the Tyson Holofield matches, the ear bite matches. My job was to do promotional stuff, the championship boxing report update, and then interview celebrities ringside uh, the night of the fight. I remember interviewing, going up to Jack Nicholson at the party ahead of time. I was shooting interviews, and he says, I can't do it, Bill. If I do it for you, I, I got to do it for everybody. Sorry, Jack. That was just, it was just a great time. Most of the time that I've been to Las Vegas has been for professional reasons, actually. And I've been to Vegas at least in my life, at least two dozen, at least two dozen times. And never for, never a short trip, always for at least three, four nights. Yeah. It's amazing. Also, your background and your, your career, you actually have not stopped doing what you do because you've written a book. You are constantly, not only, and we're going to talk about it and when we return in a moment, your sure. current book, but you, you also wrote another book called Got What It Takes, and you also do speeches and presentations. So it's not like you're not doing what you used to do. You're still doing what you used to do. Well, Ira, that's, that's really good. You know, I don't like to be described as a former anything. I'm in show business. I've been in show business since 1966. When I quit a job with a comedy team and that comedy and started being their manager and they went on to write for Mary Tyler Moore and Newhart and I'm still working and still loving work. So it's just the nature of my personality. It doesn't, I'm not trying to prove anything. I, I was given a gift, a gift of dealing with people and a gift of, of public speaking and, and, a, and a creative gift as a writer. And the environment in which I grew up in Philadelphia, my high school and so forth, really nurtured that gift. And I just can enjoy using the blessings that I've been given. Let's take a break. In fact, my guest, Bill Boggs, does not get bogged down. He continues. So, yeah, Bill, Bill Boggs is a four-time Emmy award-winning interviewer, no stranger to Las Vegas. He's also the author of The Adventures of Spike the Wonder Dog, a new comedic novel from Post Hill Press. We'll be right back. We'll be back with more Talk About Las Vegas with Ira in just a moment. Across the state, people have stepped up to the challenge and are staying home for Nevada. We know it's difficult, but now we are looking ahead to understand how to continue to protect our loved ones and our community. Wearing a face covering in public, leaving extra space between you and others, and offering a friendly wave instead of a handshake shows your support for the Silver State and your neighbors. For more information on how we can all continue to flatten the curve, go to nvhealthresponse.nv.gov. This message funded by a grant through the Nevada Department of Health and Human Services, aired in cooperation with the Nevada Broadcasters Association and this station. Now let's get back to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Welcome back. I'm talking with Bill Boggs, four-time Emmy Award-winning interviewer and no stranger to Las Vegas, as I mentioned. He's also the author of The Adventures of Spike the Wonder Dog, a new comedic novel from Post Hill Press. For everything about Bill Boggs, go to BillBoggs.com. And for everything about Spike the Wonder Dog, go to SpikeTheWonderDog.com. And you can follow both on Twitter at Real 
Bill Boggs and Spike Wonderdog. And Bill, let's talk a little bit about the book because this is your, sure. I guess, your second book, right? Because the first book no, I read. actually my my third book. Sorry, what's the first book? Yes. My first book was a a, a comedic love story called At First Sight. It was actually optioned several years after it was printed. It was optioned for a movie by a multi-award, Academy Award-winning person, but it it, it got dropped. I don't like to mention the name. It never got made. So so I began in comedy. The book I've written, The Adventures of Spike the Wonder Dog, as told to Bill Boggs, It's, it's a dog story. And the dog is narrating his rise to fame with his talk show host, Master Buzz, who's like me. So the dog has the observational eye of Steve Colbert, Jerry Seinfeld. He, the dog just looks at life and looks at humans and the situations in an extremely comedic, observational way. And also and a uh, politically incorrect way as well. Well, to some extent. So much, so much well, Ira. So much humor is deemed politically incorrect. Correct. And I hope, I hope, meaning that you, I know, I'm an officer of the Friars Club in New York. I did a series called Comedy Tonight in the mid 80s, syndicated, where we had 450 comedians over the course of two years, syndicated 123 stations. I know a lot of comedians. I started my career in comedy, right? I have friends who go on the stage now knowing that the likelihood that they're going to offend somebody in the audience of, say, 500 people is great, and that they'll be vilified the next day on social media because they said this about their wife, or they said this it was an objectification, or they said this because it was cultural appropriation, or they said this and they'd put a person in like this, and people didn't like that. So you know what? I said, screw it. My book is comedy. My book is designed to make you laugh. Laugh at our foibles, laugh at some of the truisms that exist in certain kind of stereotypes, laugh at cultural appropriation, laugh, 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 okay? And I said, you know what? I'm just going to put a warning on the cover. Politically incorrect humor, just like Bill Maher did on his show. That term has nothing to do with politics. It doesn't have to do with left. It doesn't have to do with right. It has to do with humor. If a, if a comedian like Jerry Seinfeld will not work a college campus crowd because of how easily they're offended, I figured, screw it, I'll warn people. I hope, Ira, that when we're through this pandemic, which is something that we really are affected by, we could maybe get to a life where we're not going to be so offended by so many things that people say that we can recognize that America is a melting pot and we can all melt, which is really what America is supposed to be. Well said. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. I appreciate that. So, so the wh- book. Yeah, go ahead. About tell, tell you a little bit more about Spike the Wonder well, Dog. The the book the book is a comedy. It's like 285 pages of comedy writing. It was released on May 19th, right? Amazon has indicated they like the book. They put a discount on it on opening day, which is a very good thing, and it has gotten reviews, substantially good reviews. Of one per, one reviewer said it's exactly the kind of book. We all should, we all need, exactly, what did he say? Exactly the kind of funny book we all need to be reading right now. Winston Groom gave me an advanced blurb on the book. You know, Winston Groom wrote Forrest Gump, the great novel, and made it into a movie. He says, Bill Boggs and his friend Spike the Wonder Dog unleashed comedic wizardry 
in his madcap, highly entertaining satirical novel, Spike is the newest canine literary hero to take on the world with hilarious results. So what, what I've done, Ira, is to create another dog story and a dog who is being called Fiction's Funniest Canine, which I love. But, but you, you've created Fiction's Funniest Canine. And, of course, this book is not going to the dogs. I hope not, Ira. Thanks for helping me promote it. You know, <laughs> it, you know, short of a vaccine, laughter is the best medicine, Ira. Now you're stealing from readers. Now you're stealing from readers' digest, Bill. Yeah, that's right. You're right. Exactly. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about your your writing process too, because again, I sure. I referenced this earlier. You you never stop. You're very prolific in a lot of, and I don't mean just in the writing and just in everything you do. So, what is the process? And I ask a lot of writers who are guests this question: What is the process in terms of for you writing a book? Do you sit down at a certain time every day and you write a certain well, number of pages, or how does that work? Well, that's a good question. There were. There are writers like gay police who get dressed every morning, put on a suit and tie, walk to their office, and they don't stop until they have X amount of pages or whatever. The first book I wrote, I was doing Midday Live, and in order to write the book, I had to get up at 5 in the morning, and it's when I first started drinking coffee in the morning. I wrote for about an hour and a half, then I went jogging, and I worked all day. I, I, know, I no longer want to do that to myself. So this book... I wrote in the afternoon, meaning I would make sure I had nothing to do in the afternoon from about one on, on say about four days a week. Yeah, at minimum four days. Yeah, four days a week. So what I would do is I'd work in the morning, do whatever I needed to do, get my exercise. Then around 1.30, I would lie down and rest. While resting, I would drink a runa, R-U-N-A, which is a tea it's a high caffeine natural beverage. It's not like it's not like those ones that are made with, with chemicals. It's actually from, from a leaf anyway. And I would get a lot of pumped up from the caffeine. Then I would look at the clock and say, okay, at, at 20 of 2 or whatever, I'll get up. And I would get up, walk to my desk, disconnect everything, and go into deep concentration. Like I didn't want the phone to ring. I didn't want any disturbance from anything. And there are two, there's a level of concentration called deep concentration. And you can be in it when you're writing, you are generally in it, but you can be pulled out of it very quickly and it takes a while to get back in it. And I basically, the longest I think I ever wrote for was about two hours, maybe two hours and 15 minutes. And I didn't always end where I knew where I would be going next. And that would kind of solve itself in the next day or two. But the significant thing that happened, and if I can tell you're interested in writing, is this. As soon as I started to write the book, which I had this idea about it's going to be narrated by it, the voice of the dog came through me. So a writer knows what that means. I found the voice of the central character. It wasn't a voice I speak in or a voice I had ever written in before. As soon as I felt that flowing through me, and I can do it now. After a couple of years of writing Spike the Underdog, I can do it now. I, it's like I have an association. The book actually is called The Adventures of Spike the Underdog as told to Bill Boggs because the dog narrates the story, and it's as if he has told it to me. But you have to read the 
prelude to understand. Right, and there's also a chapter about Las Vegas in the book as well. Yeah. Nice little Any of the stuff that happens in Vegas with the Max X flagship drone, like I got money piles, the big championship fight. Did you get into any? Yes, exactly. So it adds a color. It adds a color of Las Vegas to the book itself, which is nice. So here's the challenge that I see for you as a writer. Did you find when you were initially writing it and you're in the, what I call the zone, so you're being creative and you're writing down, you're not worrying about editing or rewriting, you're just writing right. it initially. Yep. Was that the easy part or was the easy part the rewriting and editing afterwards, which is more mechanical and technical? Well, easy, easy is um, a, a too facile a word. Was that the easy part? Was it the less phrase hard the, part? Phrase the question. Phrase the question in a different way. I know okay. you're going for something. I'm not yeah. quite sure. Well, the, when you're when you're in the zone and you're creating, that's in a way the fun part because it just flows and you're getting the material out. Now you yeah. take now you come back to it, say the next day, and you're looking at it in order to improve it, to edit it, to rewrite it. That's more of a a different form of concentration, and it's also not as I don't think fulfilling because the creativity is more in the initial writing. So I guess that's the um, question I have. Is it a duality for you in the, the, the creative writing and then the editing and rewriting? Very interesting question. I appreciate you rephrasing it. Uh, I would say equal. But each one was an equal creative challenge. And neither one was more difficult than the other. The most difficult part was getting the book deal. Not easy to get a book deal for a novel, particularly... Uh, honestly, I, I you know was dealing with a lot of females uh, who were in their late twenties. Couple of them who read the book, and you know, there's this objectification of, of women in the book. This it, it, it didn't. I create this thing, the grotto with the world's first topless water park, which exists right there in Las Vegas. So if you're going to be offended, uh, you can you can easily be offended. But I finally uh, then I had a, a male agent who loved the book. And then another female agent who was older, like in, like her fifties, who went wild for it. Then I knew things were catching on. We finally got a book deal with with Post Hill Press, which was recently published. Tom Dreesen's book. He's worked in Vegas. He's wonderful. Anthony Cumia's book. Adam Carolla's book. So I'm in good company. And now, of course, promoting it during the pandemic. But as I said, laughter can be pretty good medicine, and you agreed with me there. Yes, of course. And so does the Reader's Digest as well. So yeah. I, yeah, laughter is because whether something is quote unquote politically incorrect or not, does it make you laugh? Are you getting all those toxins out of your body laughing in a great form of release? And as you say, during this time, that's that's particularly you important. Know, there's, a, there's a Japanese proverb I read yesterday. It's not one I've been quoting ever. Probably never will again. It says, when, when you laugh, you're with the gods. It's just one of those things that sounds good. I don't think it's true, but it, it sounds nice. You know? Well, I'm going to leave you with a saying that I don't think I've shared yeah. before on air, but it's something that really means a lot, especially in your line of work, my line of work, and others. And that is be happy in your work for your long time dead. Wow. That's so, beautiful. A little philosophical beautiful. note there. Before I let you yeah. go, Bill, in addition to Sinatra or separate from Sinatra, because that's a world on to itself. Mm -hmm. Who had the most impact on you in your career from an interview standpoint? Someone that you interviewed and made a major impact on you. We have about a minute left. 
Back in 1974, my when I was auditioning to do Midday Live with Bill Boggs, a, a live show, I happened to have on the program the aerialist, the tightrope walker, Philippe Petit, the morning after he had walked between the two World Trade Centers on a tightrope. And there's a whole documentary about this. This is a this this is a piece of performance art that should never be forgotten. In the middle of the night, he and associates went to the top of one World Trade Center one, and with a with a bow and arrow, fired a rope across to the top of the other. The associate tied the thing around it, and they attached a wire, like a tightrope wire, like you know that the, the, they would walk across the Grand Canyon, one of those things. And the next morning, Philippe Petit was up there on the wire between the World Trade Centers for like 40 minutes, lying down on the wire, walking on the wire, an incredible, incredible feat, right? The next morning, he got arrested, they let him out of jail, and somehow the next day, he was on midday, and he said something, and I have a slight fear of heights, he said something to me that they had a huge impact on me with regard to confidence. This is what he said. He said, it didn't make any difference if I was on the wire five feet off the ground or 5,000 feet off the ground. I was attached to that wire. I've never forgotten that as a, a testimony to someone having confidence in themselves for what they do. Confidence is crucial in life. You have to be willing to take a risk, have confidence, and not worry about failing to accomplish anything. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Bill Boggs, four-time Emmy Award-winning interviewer and no stranger to Las Vegas. He's also the author of The Adventures of Spike the Wonder Dog, a new comedic novel from Post Hill Press. Bill, thanks for being on the show. Good man, Ira. Thank you. I loved it. See, thank you. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Yeah,